Part 1, Chapter 3 of The Daisy Chain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gail Goslin. The Daisy Chain by Charlotte Mary Young. Part 1, Chapter 3. Wee modest crimson-tipped flower, thou'st met me in an evil hour, for I mourn crush among the stour thy slender stem. To spare thee now is past my power, thou bonny gem. Burns. Is this all the walking party? exclaimed Mr. Earnscliff, as Miss Winter, Flora, and Norman gathered in the hall. Harry won't go because of Ethel's spectacles, answered Flora, and Mary and he are inseparable, so they're gone with Hector to have a shipwreck in the field. And your other sisters? Margaret has rattled. She is going to drive out with Mamma, said Norman. As to Ethel dread the unready, I'll run up and hurry her. In a moment he was at her door. Oh, Norman, come in. Is it time? I should think so. You're keeping everyone waiting. Oh, dear, go on. Only just tell me the past participle of Ophero, and I'll catch you up. Oblatus. Oh, yes, how stupid. The A, long or short. Then that's right. I had such a line in my head, I was forced to write it down. Is not it a capital subject this time? The devotion of Decius? Capital! Let me see, said Norman, taking up a paper scribbled in pencil, with Latin verses. Oh, you have taken up quite a different line from mine. I began with Mount Vesuvius spouting lava like anything. But Mount Vesuvius didn't spout till it overthrew Pompeii. Murder! cried Norman. I forgot! It's lucky you put me in mind. I must make a fresh beginning! There go my six best lines. However, it was an uncanny place, fit for hobgoblins and shades and funny customers, which will do as well for my purpose. Ha! That's grand about its being so much better than the Vana Gloria Triumphalis. Only take care of the scanning there. It was but English, something like this. For what is equal to the fame of forgetting self in the aim? That's not right, but... Ethel! Norman! What are you about? cried Flora. Do you mean to go to Coxmoor today? Oh, yes, cried Ethel, flying into vehement activity. Only I've lost my blue-edged handkerchief. Flora, have you seen it? No, but here's your red scarf. Thank you. There's a good Flora. And, oh, I finished a frock all but two stitches. Where's it gone? Go on, all of you. I'll overtake you. Purer than breath of earthly fame is losing self in a glorious aim. Is that better, Norman? You'll drive us out of patience, said Flora, tying the handkerchief around Ethel's throat and pulling out the fingers of her gloves, which, of course, were inside out. Are you ready? Oh, my frock, my frock! There it is. Three stitches. Go on, and I'll come, said Ethel, seizing a needle and sewing vehemently at a little pink frock. Go on, Miss Winter goes slowly up the hill, and I'll overtake you. Come, Norman, then. It is the only way to make her come at all. I shall wait for her, said Norman. Go on, Flora. We shall catch you up in no time. And as Flora went, he continued, Never mind your aims and fames and trumpery English rhymes. Your verses will be much the best, Ethel. I only went on a little about Mount Vesuvius and the landscape, as Alan described it the other day, and Decius taking a last look, knowing he was to die. I made him beg his horse's pardon, and say how they will both be remembered, 
and their self-devotion would inspire Romans to all posterity, and shout with a noble voice, said Norman, repeating some of his lines, correcting them as he proceeded. "'Oh, yes, but, oh, dear, I've done! Come along!' said Ethel, crumpling her work into a bundle and snatching up her gloves. Then, as they ran downstairs and emerged into the street, "'It is a famous subject.' "'Yes, you have made a capital beginning. If you won't break down somewhere, as you always do, with some frightful false quantity that you would get an imposition for if you were a boy, I wish you were!' I should like to see old Hoxton's face, if you were to show him up some of these verses. I'll tell you what, Norman, if I was you, I would not make Decius flatter himself with the fame he was to get. It is too like the stuff everyone talks in stupid books. I want him to say, Rome, my country, the eagles must win. If they do, never mind what becomes of me. But why should he not like to get the credit of it as he did? Fame and glory, they are the spirit of life, the reward of such a death. Oh, no, 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 said Ethel. Fame is coarse and vulgar, blinder than ever they draw love or fortune. She is only a personified newspaper, trumpeting out all that is extraordinary, without minding whether it is good or bad. She misses the delicate and lovely. I wish they would give us a theme to write about her. I should like to abuse her well. "'It would make a very good theme in a new line,' said Norman. "'But I don't give in to it altogether. "'It is the hope and the thought of fame "'that has made men great from first to last. "'It is in every one that is not good for nothing, "'and always will be. "'The moving spirit of man's greatness.' "'I'm not sure,' said Ethel. "'I think looking for fame is like wanting a reward at once.' I'd rather people forgot themselves. Do you think Arnold from Winkelried thought about fame when he threw himself on the spears? He got it, said Norman. Yes, he got it for the good of other people, not to please himself. Fame does those that admire it good, not those that win it. But, said Norman, and both were silent for some short interval, as they left the last buildings of the town and began to mount a steep hill. Presently, Norman slackened his pace, and driving his stick vehemently against a stone, exclaimed, "'It is no use talking, Ethel. It is all a fight and a race. One is always to try to be foremost. That's the spirit of the thing. That's what the great, from first to last, have struggled and fought and lived and died for. I know it is a battle. I know it is a race. The Bible says so,' replied Ethel. But is not there the difference that here all may win, not only one? One may do one's best, not care whether one is first or last. That's what our reading today said. That was against trumpery vanity, false elevation. Not what one has earned for oneself, but getting into other people's places that one never deserved. That everyone despises. Of course, that they do. I say, Norman, didn't you mean Harvey Anderson? Instead of answering, Norman exclaimed, It is pretension that is hateful. True excelling is what one's life is for. No, no, I'll never be beat, Ethel. I never have been beat by anyone, except by you, when you take pains, he added, looking exultingly at his sister. And I never will be. 
Oh, Norman. I mean, of course, while I have senses, I would not be like Richard for all the world. Oh, no, no, poor Richard. He is an excellent fellow in everything else, said Norman. I could sometimes wish I was more like him, but how he can be so amazingly slow, I can't imagine. That examination paper he broke down in, I could have done it as easily as possible. I did it all but one question, said Ethel. But so did he, you know, and we can't tell whether we should have it done well enough. I know I must do something respectable when first I go to Oxford, if I don't wish to be known as the man whose brother was plucked, said Norman. Yes, said Ethel, if Papa will but let you try for the Randall scholarship next year, but he says it is not good to go to Oxford so young. And I believe I had better not be there with Richard, added Norman. I don't like coming into contrast with him, and I don't think he can like it, poor fellow, and it isn't his fault. I'd rather stay another year here, get one of the open scholarships, and leave the Stoneborough ones for those who can do no better. In justice to Norman, we must observe that this was by no means said as a boast. He would scarcely have thus spoken to any one but Ethelred, to whom, as well as to himself, it seemed mere matter of fact. The others had in the meantime halted at the top of the hill, and were looking back at the town. The great old minster, raising its twin towers and long roof close to the river, where rich green meadows spread over the valley, and the town rising irregularly on the slope above, plentifully interspersed with trees and gardens, and one green space on the banks of the river, speckled over with a flock of little black dots in rapid motion. "'Here you are!' exclaimed Flora. I told them it was of no use to wait when you and Norman had begun a dissertation. Now, Mr. Earnscliff, I should like you to say, cried Ethel, which do you think is the best, the name of it or the thing? Her eloquence always broke down with any auditor but her brother, or perhaps Margaret. Ethel, said Norman, how is anyone to understand you? The argument is this. Ethel wants people to do great deeds— and be utterly careless of the fame of them. I say, that love of glory is a mighty spring. A mighty one, said Alan, but I think, as far as I understand the question, that Ethel has the best of it. I don't mean that people should not serve the cause first of all, said Norman, but let them have their right place and due honour. They had better make up their minds to do without it, said Alan. Remember, the world knows nothing of its greatest men." "'Then it is a great shame,' said Norman. "'But do you think it right?' said Ethel. "'To care for distinction. "'It is a great thing to earn it, "'but I don't think one should care for the outer glory.' "'I believe it is a great temptation,' said Alan. "'The being over-elated or over-depressed "'by success or failure in the eyes of the world, "'independently of the exertion we have used.' "'You call it a temptation?' said Ethel. "'Decidedly so.' "'But one can't live or get on without it,' said Norman. "'There they were cut short. "'There was a plantation to be crossed with a gate that would not open, "'and that seemed an effectual barrier against both Miss Winter and the donkey, "'until, by persuasive eloquence and great gallantry, "'Mr. Earnscliff performed the wonderful feat of getting the former over the tall fence, "'while Norman conducted the donkey a long way round.' undertaking to meet them at the other side of the plantation. The talk became desultory as they proceeded for at least a mile 
along a cart track through soft-tufted grass and heath and young fir trees. It ended in a broad open moor, stony and full of damp boggy hollows, forlorn and desolate under the autumn sky. Here they met Norman again, and walked on along a very rough and dirty road, the ground growing more decidedly into hills and valleys as they advanced, till they found themselves before a small but very steep hillock, one side of which was cut away into a slate quarry. Round this stood a colony of roughly built huts of mud, turf, or large blocks of the slate. Many workmen were engaged in splitting up the slates, or loading wagons with them. Rude, wild-looking men, at the sight of whom the ladies shrank up to their protectors, but who seemed too busy even to spare time for staring at them. They were directed to John Taylor's house, a low mud cottage, very wretched-looking and apparently so smoky that Mr. Earnscliff and Norman were glad to remain outside and survey the quarry, while the ladies entered. Inside they found more cleanliness and neatness than they had expected, but there was a sad appearance of poverty, insufficient furniture, and the cups and broken teapot on the table, holding nothing but toast and water, as a substitute for their proper contents. The poor woman was sitting by the fire with one twin on her lap, and the other on a chair by her side, and a larger child was in the corner by the fire, looking heavy and ill, while others of different ages lounged about listlessly. She was not untidy, but very pale, and she spoke in a meek, subdued way, as if the ills of life were so heavy on her that she had no spirit even to complain. She thanked them for their gifts, but languidly, and did not visibly brighten when told that her husband was better. Flora asked when the babes would be christened. "'I can't hardly tell, miss. Tis so far to go. "'I suppose none of the children can go to school?' "'I don't know their faces there,' said Flora, looking at a nice, tall, smooth-haired girl of thirteen or fourteen. "'No, miss, tis so far. "'I am sorry they should not, for they always was used to it where we lived before, "'and my oldest girl, she can work very nicely. "'I wish I could get a little place for her.' "'You would hardly know what to do without her,' said Miss Winter. "'No, ma'am, but she wants better food than I can give her, and it is a bad, wild place for a girl to grow up. It is not like what I was used to, ma'am. I was always used to keep to my school and to my church. But it is a bad place to live in here. No one could deny it, and the party left the cottage gravely. Ellen and Norman joined them, having heard a grievous history of the lawlessness of the people from a foreman with whom they had met. There seemed to be no visible means of improvement. The parish church was Stoneborough, and there the living was very poor, the tithes having been appropriated to the old monastery, and since its dissolution having fallen into possession of a body that never did anything for the town. The incumbent, Mr. Ramsden, had small means, and was not a high stamp of clergyman, seldom exerting himself, and leaving most of his parish work to the two undermasters of the school, Mr. Wilmot and Mr. Harrison who did all they had time and strength for, and more, too, within the town itself. There was no hope for Coxmoor. "'There would be a worthy ambition,' said Ethelred, as they turned their steps homewards. "'Let us propose that aim to ourselves, to build a church on Coxmoor.' "'How many years do you give us to do it in?' said Norman. "'Few, or many, I don't care. 
I'll never leave off thinking about it till it is done. It need not be long, said Flora, if one could get up a subscription. A penny subscription? said Norman. I'd rather have it my own doing. You agree, then, said Ethel. Do you, Mr. Ernscliffe? I may safely do so, he answered, smiling. Miss Winter looked at Ethel dread reprovingly, and she shrank into herself, drew apart, and indulged in a reverie. She had heard in books of girls writing poetry, romance, history, gaining fifties and hundreds. Could not some of the myriads of fancies floating in her mind thus be made available? She would compose, publish, earn money, some day call Papa, show him her hoard, beg him to take it, and, never owning whence it came, raise the building. Spire and chancel, pinnacle and buttress, rose before her eyes, and she and Norman were standing in the porch with an orderly religious population, blessing the unknown benefactor who had caused the news of salvation to be heard among them. They were almost at home when the sight of a crowd in the main street checked them. Norman and Mr. Ernscliffe went forward to discover the cause, and spoke to someone on the outskirts. Then Mr. Ernscliffe hurried back to the ladies. "'There's been an accident,' he said hastily. "'You had better go down the lane and in by the garden.' He was gone in an instant, and they obeyed in silence. Whence came Ethel's certainty that the accident concerned themselves? In an agony of apprehension, though without one outward sign of it, she walked home. They were in the garden. All was apparently as usual, but no one was in sight. Ethel had been first, but she held back, and let Miss Winter go forward into the house. The front door was open. Servants were standing about in confusion, and one of the maids, looking dreadfully frightened, gave a cry. "'Oh, Miss! Miss! Have you heard?' "'No! What? What's happened?' "'Not Mrs. May!' exclaimed Miss Winter. "'Oh, ma'am! It is all of them! The carriage is overturned, and—' "'Who's hurt? Mamma! Papa! Oh, tell me!' cried Flora. "'There's Nurse!' and Ethel flew up to her. "'What is it?' "'Oh, nurse! My poor, poor children!' said old nurse, passionately kissing Ethel. Harry and Mary were on the stairs behind her, clinging together. A stranger looked into the house, followed by Adams, the stableman. "'They are going to bring Miss May in,' someone said. Ethel could bear it no longer. As if she could escape, she fled upstairs into her room, and, falling on her knees, hid her face on her bed. There were heavy steps in the house— then a sound of hasty feet coming up to her. Norman dashed into the room and threw himself on a chair. He was ghastly pale and shuddered all over. "'Oh, Norman, Norman, speak! What is it?' He groaned but could not speak. He rested his head against her and gasped. She was terribly frightened. "'I'll call!' And she would have gone, but he held her. "'No, no, they can't!' He was prevented from saying more by chattering teeth and deadly faintness. She tried to support him, but could only guide him as he sank, till he lay at full length on the floor, where she put a pillow under his head, and gave him some water. "'Is it—oh, tell me, are they much hurt? Oh, try to say—' "'They say Margaret is alive,' said Norman in gasp, but—and Papa—he stood up, sat, walked, was better. Is he hurt? Much hurt! His arm—' and the tremor and fainting stopped him again. Mama, whispered Ethel. But Norman only pressed his face into the pillow. 
she was so bewildered as to be more alive to the present distress of his condition than to the vague horrors downstairs some minutes passed in silence norman lying still excepting a nervous trembling that agitated his whole frame again was heard the strange tread doors opening and shutting and suppressed voices and he turned his face upwards and listened with his hand pressed to his forehead as if to keep himself still enough to listen oh what is the matter what is it cried ethel startled and recalled to the sense of what was passing oh norman then springing up with a sudden thought mr ward oh is he there yes said norman in a low hopeless tone he was at the place he said it what again norman's face was out of sight mamma ethel's understanding perceived but her mind refused to grasp the extent of the calamity there was no answer save a convulsive squeezing of her hand fresh sounds below recalled her to speech and action where is she what are they doing for her what there's nothing to be done she when they lifted her up she was dead dead the boy lay with his face hidden the girl sat by him on the floor too much crushed for even the sensations belonging to grief neither moving nor looking after an interval norman spoke again the carriage turned right over her head struck on the curbstone did you see said ethel presently i saw them lift her up he spoke at intervals as he could get breath and bear to utter the words and papa he was stunned but soon he sat up said he would go to her he looked at her felt her pulse and then sank down over her and did you say i, I can't remember was he hurt the shuddering came again his arm all twisted broken and his voice sank into a faint whisper ethel was obliged to sprinkle him again with water but he won't die said she in a tone calm from its bewilderment oh no 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 and margaret they were bringing her home i'll go and see oh what's the meaning of this exclaimed he scolding himself as sitting up he was forced to raise his head on his shaking hand you are still faint dear norman you had better lie still and i'll go and see faint stuff how horridly stupid but he was obliged to lay his head down again and ethel scarcely less trembling crept carefully towards the stairs but a dread of what she might meet came over her and she turned towards the nursery the younger one sat there in a frightened huddle mary was on a low chair by the infant's cot blanche in her lap tom and harry leaning against her and aubrey almost asleep mary held up her finger as ethel entered and whispered hush don't wake baby for anything the first true pang of grief shot through ethel like a dart stabbing and taking away her breath where are they she said how's papa who's with him mr ward and alan earnscliff said harry nurse came up just now and said they were setting his arm where is he on the bed in his dressing-room said harry has he come to himself is he better they did not seem to know and ethel asked where to find flora with margaret she was told and she was thinking whether she could venture to seek her when she herself 
came fast up the stairs. Ethel and Harry both darted out. Don't stop me, said Flora. They want some handkerchiefs. What? Is not she in her own room? No, said Harry. In Mama's. And then his face quivered all over, and he turned away. Ethel ran after her sister, and pulling out drawers without knowing what she sought, begged to hear how Papa and Margaret were. We can't judge of Margaret. She has moved and made a little moaning. There are no limbs broken, but we are afraid for her head. Oh, if Papa could but— And Papa? Mr. Ward is with him now. His arm is terribly hurt. But, oh, Flora, one moment. Is he sensible? Hardly. He does not take any notice. But don't keep me. Can I do anything? Following her to the head of the stairs. No, I don't see what you can do. Miss Winter and I are with Margaret. There's nothing to do for her. It was a relief. Ethelred shrank from what she might have to behold, and Flora hastened down, too busy and too useful to have time to think. Harry had gone back to his refuge in the nursery, and Ethel returned to Norman. There they remained for a long time, both unwilling to speak or stir, or even to observe to each other on the noises that came into them, as their door was left ajar, though in those sounds they were so absorbed that they did not notice the cold of a frosty October evening, or the darkness that closed in on them. They heard the poor babe crying, one of the children going down to call Nurse, and Nurse coming up. Then Harry, at the door of the room where the boy slept, calling Norman in a low voice. Norman, now nearly recovered, went and brought him into his sister's room, and his tidings were that their father's arm had been broken in two places, and the elbow frightfully injured, having been crushed and twisted by the wheel. He was also a good deal bruised, and though Mr. Ward trusted there was no positive harm to the head, he was in an unconscious state, from which the severe pain of the operation had only roused him, so far as to evince a few signs of suffering. Margaret was still insensible. Piteous sound of the baby's wailing almost broke their hearts. Norman walked about the room in the dark, and said he should go down. He could not bear it, but he could not make up his mind to go, and after about a quarter of an hour, to their great relief, it ceased. Next, Mary opened the door, saying, "'Norman, here's Mr. Wilmot come to ask if he can do anything. Miss Winter sent a word that you had better go to him.' "'How is baby?' asked Harry." "'Nurse has fed her, and is putting her to bed. "'She is quiet now,' said Mary. "'Will you go down, Norman?' "'Where is he?' "'In the drawing-room.' Norman paused to ask what he was to say. "'Nothing,' said Mary. "'Nobody can do anything.' "'Make haste. Don't you want a candle?' "'No, thank you. I'd rather be in the dark.' "'Come up as soon as you've seen him,' said Ethelred. Norman went slowly down with failing knees, hardly able to conquer the shudder that came over him, as he passed those rooms. There were voices in the drawing-room, and he found a sort of council there, Alan Earnscliff, the surgeon, and Mr. Wilmot. They turned as he came in, and Mr. Wilmot held out his hand with a look of affection and kindness that went to his heart, making room for him on the sofa, while going on with what he was saying. "'Then you think it would be better for me not to sit him up?' "'I should decidedly say so.' replied Mr. Ward. He has recognised Mr. Earnscliff, and any change might excite him, and lead him to ask questions, 
the moment of his full consciousness is especially to be dreaded. But uh, you do not call him insensible. No, but he seems stunned, stupefied by the shock and by pain. He spoke to Miss Flora when she brought him some tea. And admirably she managed, said Alan Earnscliffe. I was much afraid of some answer that would rouse him. But she kept her self-possession beautifully, and seemed to compose him in a moment. She is valuable indeed. So much judgment and activity, said Mr. Ward. I don't know what we should have done without her. But we ought to have Mr. Richard. Has no one sent to him? Alan Earnscliffe and Norman looked at each other. Is he at Oxford, or at his tutors? asked Mr. Wilmot. At Oxford. He was to be there to-day. Was he not, Norman? What o'clock is it? Is the post gone? Seven? No, it is all safe, said Mr. Ward. Poor Norman. He knew he was the one who ought to write, but his icy trembling hand seemed to shake more helplessly than ever, and a piteous glance fell upon Mr. Wilmot. The best plan would be, said Mr. Wilmot, for me to go to him at once and bring him home. If I go by the mail train, I shall get to him sooner than a letter could. And it will be better for him, said Mr. Ward. He will feel it dreadfully, poor boy. But we shall all do better when we have him. You can get back tomorrow evening. Sunday, said Mr. Wilmot. I believe there is a train at four. Oh, thank you, sir, said Norman. Since that is settled, perhaps I had better go up to the doctor, said Alan. I don't like leaving Flora alone with him. And he was gone. How fortunate that that youth is here, said Mr. Wilmot. He seems to be quite taking Richard's place. And to feel it as much, said Mr. Ward, he has been invaluable with his sailor's resources and handiness. Well, what shall I tell poor Richard? asked Mr. Wilmot. Tell him there is no reason his father should not do very well if we can keep him from agitation. But there's the point. He is of so excitable a constitution that his faculties being so far confused is the best thing, perhaps, that could be. Mr. Earnscliffe manages him very well, used to illness on that African coast, and the doctor is very fond of him. As to Miss May, one can't tell what to say about her yet. There's no fracture, at least. It must be a work of time to judge. Flora, at that moment, half opened the door, and called Mr. Ward, stopping for a moment to say it was for nothing of any consequence. Mr. Wilmot and Norman were left together. Norman put his hands over his face and groaned. His master looked at him with a kind anxiety, but did not feel as if it were yet time to speak of consolation. "'God bless and support you, and turn this to your good, my dear boy,' said he affectionately, as he pressed his hand. "'I hope to bring your brother to-morrow.' "'Thank you, sir,' was all Norman could say, and as Mr. Wilmot went out by the front door, he slowly went up again, and, lingering on the landing-place, was met by Mr. Ward who told him to his relief, for the mere thinking of it renewed the faint sensation, that he had better not go to his father's room. There was nothing to be done but to return to Ethel and Harry, and tell them all, with some humiliation at being helpless, where Flora was doing so much, and to leave their father to be watched by a stranger. If he had been wanted, Norman might have made the effort— but being told that he would be worse than useless, there was nothing for him but to give way. They sat together in Ethel's room till somewhere between eight and nine o'clock, 
when good old nurse, having put her younger ones to bed, came in search of them. "'Dear, dear, poor darlings,' said she, as she found them sitting in the dark. She felt their cold hands and made them all come into the nursery, where Mary was already, and fondling them one by one, as they passively obeyed her, she set them down on their little old stools around the fire, took away the high fender, and gave them each a cup of tea. Harry and Mary ate enough to satisfy her, from a weary, craving feeling, and for want of employment. Norman sat with his elbow on his knees, and a very aching head resting on his hand, glad of drink, but unable to eat. Ethel could be persuaded to do neither, till she found old nurse would let her have no peace. The nurse sent them all to bed, taking the two girls to their own room, undressing them, and never leaving them until Mary was in a fair way of crying herself to sleep, for saying her prayers had brought the tears, while Ethel lay so wide awake that it was of no use to wait for her, and then she went to the boys, tucked them each in, as when they were little children, and saying, "'Bless your dear hearts,' bestowed on each of them a kiss, which came gratefully to Norman's burning brow, and which even Harry's boyish manliness could not resist. Flora was in Margaret's room, too useful to be spared. So ended that dreadful Saturday. End of Part 1 Chapter 3 Recording by Gail Goslin.